Hello and welcome to the very first Legal Perk podcast. I'm Zane Chankiti, and today we'll be going into the very first episode of our series, Business Breakdown, where we'll tackle a specific company and analyze its journey and growth, both from a business and legal perspective. For our first episode, we'll be discussing the Walt Disney Company, commonly known as Disney, and tracking the journey from the mouse to the mega conglomerate. Before we delve into the history, I'd like to identify some repeated patterns in the story of Disney that I think can help explain its progress and growth as a business. The first of these is total control over the image and marketing. When most people think of Disney, they think of a clean, family-friendly, nostalgic image. And Disney really capitalizes on that, while at the same time being able to cater to everyone, and I'll talk more on that later. The second is being very quick to grasp growth opportunities and moving with the times. And lastly, and again, this will be more relevant when we talk about the more recent history of Disney, is having a library full of intellectual property. I'll be pointing these out as we go along. So let's begin. Part 1. A Brief History of Disney The first nearly 20 years of the company's establishment were characterized by success and market dominance, starting with making animated short films featuring classic characters such as Mickey Mouse, and going into the realm of full-length animated feature films starting with Snow White, which was a particularly huge hit as this was a pretty untapped market, and Disney began productions in the height of the Great Depression. But the risk paid off. Snow White, and the films that followed it, were all hugely successful. However, in 1941, Disney suffered a setback when his animators went on strike. But Disney took this as an opportunity to diversify business. He began showing interest in live-action films, since animators can't go on strike, the most popular of which was Mary Poppins, as well as television productions and his new theme park, Disneyland, which opened in California. Around this time, he also established the distribution company Buena Vista Productions in order to ensure complete control over his films and their marketing. This ties back to the patterns that I spoke of at the beginning of the podcast, that he wanted to maintain a specific image and form this company in order to do so. The Disney company saw a decline throughout the late 60s until the late 1980s, after Walt Disney's death. Upon changes of management, the company started getting back on track One of the ways it did this was to widen its demographic without sullying its family-friendly image. Disney formed a subsidiary called Touchstone Pictures, which was devoted to producing films for adult audiences. Touchstone produced some of the most financially successful films of the 1980s and 90s, including Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Good Morning Vietnam, Pretty Woman, and Death Poets Society. Disney also acquired Miramax Films. For those of you who are movie experts, you'll know that this is or was Harvey Weinstein's company in 1993, which produced films such as Pulp Fiction, Goodwill Hunting, and Shakespeare in Love, and was later sold in 2010. To maintain its family-friendly image, though, Disney does not use its name on any of those productions. Disney also shifted back focus to animated musical films in what is now known as the Disney Renaissance, with wildly popular films such as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and The Lion King. The company also experimented with computerized animation and used it on its joint project with Pixar on Toy Story. New Disney theme parks were opened in Paris, Tokyo, and Hong Kong. The company also developed its own Disney Cruise Line and acquired ABC Network and consequently the ESPN Sports Cable Network and made its own Disney Channel Cable Network and Radio Disney. Another very lucrative venture from Disney at the time was taking its stories, including Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, to Broadway, where the former ranks as one of the longest-running shows on Broadway to date. And so we come to the end of the 20th century, and the Walt Disney Company is established as one of the world's largest entertainment conglomerates. Part 2. 
Disney in the 21st century. So I talked in the beginning of this podcast about some of the patterns that um, can help us make sense of the progress and growth that Disney has had as a business, namely control over the image and marketing, having a clean, family-friendly, nostalgic image while at the same time being able to cater to everyone, as well as being quick to grasp growth opportunities and to move with the times. And finally, having a library of intellectual property. I think you'll find the last two of those are the most relevant in this part of Disney's history. In 2005, Bob Iger became the CEO of Disney. Iger has been one of the most influential figures in the company for his strategic expansion of Disney in leading all of its recent significant acquisitions. When talking about these acquisitions, he said, quote unquote, we are prepared to move wisely and quickly in order to respond to rapid changes in the marketplace. I think this is really important because this highlights that pattern that I spoke about, which is being quick to grasp growth opportunities and moving with the times. The first of these acquisitions came in 2006, when Iger announced that Disney would acquire Pixar for $7.4 billion, as well as strengthening the animation department at Disney, particularly com the computer-generated animation, it also eliminated the needs for negotiations over joint projects, which previously came with disagreements, such as when the two companies collaborated on Toy Story. Disney Pixar has since made many successful films, including Ratatouille, Wall-E, Toy Story 3, and Up. The next significant uh, acquisition was Marvel Studios. I previously said that the company has a very child-friendly image, while at the same time being able to cater to everyone. Acquiring Marvel allowed them to do this. The company catered to children with its animation, its theme park, its cruise line. But Disney was missing the teenage and young adult demographic. In 2009, Disney acquired Marvel Studios for around $4 billion. This was perfect from an IP standpoint. The comic book company, with more than 5,000 characters, could provide lots of potential for merchandise, adding to Disney theme parks, as well as making endless movies, which so far have garnered Disney over $18.2 billion. Next up is Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm in 2012 for over $4 billion. As well as having the same advantages that Disney did when acquiring Marvel, such as merchandise and license licensing opportunities and expanding Disney theme parks, Star Wars also had its particular appeal, with older audiences having seen the first films in the 1970s, as well as younger audiences having seen the prequels, and just for sci-fi lovers in general. The first three acquisitions alone, namely Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm, have earned Disney more than $33.8 billion at the global box office, not including marketing costs or production or the benefits of merchandise and theme park extensions. And finally, the acquisition of 21st Century Fox, which occurred in March of 2019, for $71 billion. This particular move will aid Disney in what is now being dubbed as the streaming wars between Amazon and Netflix. Along with its own library of content, Disney now has all of Fox's entertainment assets as well. Here again, we can see the same pattern of building up a library of intellectual property that will allow Disney an edge when competing with Netflix and Amazon. Part 3. Disney and the Streaming Wars Some people nowadays don't really know that Netflix originally started as a film sale and rental company. But when it really started its avenue into the realm of online streaming, it did seem revolutionary. Why pay for a TV package when you could get Netflix for a lower price and watch it anywhere? 
It also had a wide variety of shows and movies, because Netflix would negotiate contracts in order to have shows like Mad Men or Friends on their platform. I personally remember when Disney or Disney Pixar films were on Netflix, films like Ratatouille or Mulan, but then the streaming wars really started to take place. Those of you who have Netflix might have noticed the increased trend of Netflix-made shows and movies recently. This is because Netflix, in comparison to a company like Disney, doesn't have much of its own content but simply negotiated with other companies to have their shows and films on their streaming platform. Which worked, obviously, when Netflix was the sole or the main streaming platform. Then others started cropping up, CBS, Amazon Prime, Peacock, HBO Max, Hulu, which Disney later acquired, and of course, recently, Disney Plus itself. Disney could simply make its own and use its full library of IP, as well as take advantage of the fact that it had ESPN, now ESPN Plus, and Hulu, to show on their own platform. Of course, it may seem strange to start off a section of our podcast about Disney talking about Netflix, but it's important to understand the way in which Disney has entered the streaming market and why, in the short time it's been there, it has thrived where others have struggled. Disney Plus alone has now over 60 million subscribers. And while the company's revenues have actually jumped up by 36%, the profits have decreased by 23% from last year. Disney has to invest billions of dollars into content and technology to compete with Netflix, and has placed its streaming platform at $7 a month, which is about half the subscription fee of a standard US Netflix plan. But Disney has a great advantage, not just with its enormous library of IP, but also with its very unique brand value. Alison Herman from The Ringer talked about this when comparing Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus. She says that everybody knows what Disney stands for. After all, the company has been delivering quality entertainment for nearly a century. And that Disney Plus is merely a different kind of vehicle to do the same. Shows like The Mandalorian have taken the internet by storm. First of all, it capitalizes on Star Wars and produces a quality show. Disney also benefits from the media storm surrounding a character like Baby Yoda, which can prove that in some cases, memes can be the best marketing, particularly with the case of Disney, which, as Herman describes it, is a company that has mastered the art of weaponizing cuteness. Apple, on the other hand, while being a veritable tech giant, doesn't have the same kind of brand value when it comes to entertainment. And while Apple TV Plus is around $2 cheaper than Disney Plus in the US, it can't rely on the same kind of library of entertainment that Disney Plus has, particularly entertainment that people already have an emotional attachment to. Apple TV doesn't have Pixar or Marvel or Star Wars or The Simpsons, the list goes on. So Apple is left multitasking, both launching an entirely new entertainment persona while at the same time trying to sell its product. And while Amazon Prime is still a very serious contender and has more actual content than Disney Plus does, it still has to contend with the fact that Disney has more popular films, and is also about half the subscription price in the US. While Netflix is still on top in terms of subscriber count, we'll just have to wait and see who really wins the streaming wars, since new streaming platforms seem to be cropping up all the time. That said, Anna Nicolaou from the Financial Times has described Disney Plus as a checkmate. It really pulls on some of the higher level Disney strategies of the past few decades, Namely, having this unique brand value, what she calls a rare emotional pull, as well as the highly strategic conglomerate that Iger has been leading, which is to grasp the opportunities wherever they come in the market. Part 4. Disney as an Entertainment Predator 
This title mainly came out of a really interesting article that I read from the Financial Times called How Disney Became Entertainment's Apex Predator by Danny Lee. Just as a side note, I will post all the resources that went into this podcast in case you want to read them, which I highly recommend. Some of them might be subscription only, uh, Financial Times being one of those. I would actually really recommend, if you can, subscribing to them because they are really great resources. So in this article, the author touched upon some of the really important aspects of Disney that we have already discussed in this podcast, such as retaining its family-friendly image while also having products that appeal to everybody, its extensive library of intellectual property that allows for opportunities for merchandising, licensing, and adding to Disney theme parks, and finally being quick to grasp opportunities to increase market share, such as by having subsidiary companies that make films aimed at adults, as well as acquisitions of companies like Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and Fox, and finally, breaking into the streaming business when that gained popularity. The article also briefly touched upon Disney's trend of making live-action remakes. In particular, it discussed the new live-action Lion King film, and that it did very well in the box office, partly because of nostalgic millennials who wanted to see the film again. But very likely, Disney has another demographic in mind, which is the under 10-year-olds. What with social media, the internet, life online, and gaming, Disney is vying for the attention of the younger audiences. Disney is probably hoping that younger audiences today will actually connect with the new live-action remakes, rather than look at some of the older films that Disney has made. I'll touch on this a little bit later when I talk about some of the issues that Disney has been facing. The final point that I'd like to take from this article is the response that Disney has had between the push and pull between streaming platforms and movie theaters. And Disney, instead of choosing one side or the other, decided it would capitalize on both. It would release its films to the theaters first, where it would profit from the sales tickets of its large franchise films, like the Marvel films, Star Wars, the new live-action remakes, and then, after a while, those films would join the other content on Disney+. Plus. This particular aspect of Disney's strategy has recently become very relevant, and I'll discuss this a little bit later on in the podcast. Part 5. The End of an Era Bob Iger steps down as CEO. At the end of February of 2020, Bob Iger stepped down from CEO and decided to keep a role as executive chairman and leaving the role to Bob Chapek, who was the head of the theme park business at Disney. Many considered this the end of an era. Since Iger took over in 2005, the company's stock price had increased almost 400%. Iger will remain at the company to oversee creative content until the end of next year. This whole move was seen as very surprising coming from Disney. Iger had previously put off his retirement to stay with the company, and normally, companies go to great pains to ensure that these announcements are made strategically. This, however, was announced on a Tuesday night. The choice of replacement was also confusing to some. Many had thought that Kevin Mayer, also a Disney executive, would replace Iger as CEO. He had made a name for himself as the dealmaker and helped with the acquisitions of Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and 20th Century Fox and was also appointed to run Disney's streaming business in 2018. Bob Chapek, on the other hand, was the head of theme parks, who had not really spent a lot of time on the media or direct-to-consumer side of operations. Rich Greenfield, a media analyst at Lightshed, said that instead of choosing the visionary CEO, Disney was going with the operating executive instead. On the other hand, a senior analyst for MSNBC claimed that the choice of Chapek was just right, because he followed in the Disney strategy that Iger had set down, and that Disney's strategy clearly was the best in the business, since all signs seem to show that it's been working. 
realistically, Iger didn't really have any outstanding projects or questions. Disney Plus had already been launched and the acquisition of 20th Century Fox was already finished. And at the end of the day, Iger will remain its chief executive. Bob Chapek will report directly to him until he retires. Mr. Iger himself defended the choice of Chapek. He says that no one knows the Disney brand better than Chapek, claiming that this is a prerequisite to being able to run the company and that it is less important to know the specifics of one business and more important to understand how all the pieces fit in together. It seems a very Disney characteristic to put more focus on understanding brand value rather than having experience and understanding with the actual direct-to-consumer side of business when choosing someone to lead the company. At any rate, both Iger and Chapek have assured investors that no strategy change will be made at the company, since Iger's strategy is already well entrenched at Disney. For now, only time will tell. Part 6. Disney and the Coronavirus Few companies have really been able to illustrate the real ups and downs of this pandemic than the Walt Disney Company. In April, Disney stopped paying more than 100,000 employees, nearly half of its workforce, as the company was trying to mitigate losses during the pandemic lockdown. With labor accounting for 33% of total expenses for the company, the furloughs, along with other cost cuts, should have saved Disney about $500 million a month. But while Disney staff, many so-called cast members who work at the Disney theme parks, had to rely on public support and benefits, the company still protected executive bonus schemes. This approach has been criticized by many, from Walt Disney's grandson and great-niece to Bernie Sanders. And while Disney theme parks have been opening tentatively at lower capacity, it does seem like this issue is going to be a bit more long-lasting. Disney has recently announced that it will cut park hours due to lower-than-expected attendance among the COVID-19 pandemic. The theme park's business alone has seen an 85% plunge in revenues from the past year. Disney has taken advantage of its excellent credit rating to raise debt and sign new credit facilities, leaving the company with about $20 billion in cash to draw upon in case the pandemic gets worse. And while some have criticized the company for not using some of these funds to not support some of its staff, many analysts claim that furloughing staff has been the right move for the company, which allows it to maintain its credit rating. On the other hand, Disney has actually had a really great advantage because of Disney+. Plus. With many people stuck at home, consumers have increased their use of online streaming to bide their time. Disney's direct-to-consumer business was the only one to report an increase from last year's revenue. Disney says that it now has 1 million paid subscribers across all of its streaming services. Disney Plus alone has reached over 60 million paid subscribers. And Bob Chapek says that the company has hit its goal of 60 million to 90 million subscriptions by 2024, four years early. However, on the downside, the streaming business is expected to lose money for years. As I previously said, Disney has invested billions of dollars into the streaming push, particularly with programming and technology, and is not likely to really see a profit for a few years to come. Furthermore, the company reported a net loss for the quarter of $4.72 billion, mainly due to charges related to its acquisition of 20th Century Fox. In part four of this podcast, I briefly touched upon the Disney strategy of both catering towards movie theater releases, as well as adding more content to its streaming platform, Disney+. This has recently become very relevant because on the 4th of August, Disney announced that the live-action remake of the film Mulan, which has been delayed multiple times because of theater closures due to the pandemic, will actually be released on Disney+. Starting September 4th, subscribers will be able to watch the film for an additional $30 on the Disney Plus platform. 
Personally, I think this really highlights how good of a strategy it was to both utilize movie theater releases as well as using the platform. It really sets expectations so that when news is published like this, that Mulan will actually require subscribers to pay an extra fee to watch this particular film, subscribers are not really surprised. Their expectations have been managed. Part 7. Disney Controversies and Legal Matters When talking about the trend of live-action remakes, some seem to draw the conclusion that corporate greed is driving a company like Disney to make millions of dollars remaking successful films without creativity or originality. And while I won't downplay the money-making side of things, there may be another incentive to making these remakes, as I hinted to earlier. One of the downsides of being a successful entertainment company nearly a century old is that many of Disney's older films are severely outdated, now seen as promoting problematic themes and ideas. They have been criticized for racist depictions of characters, being culturally insensitive, as well as anti-feminist, with many of Disney princess archetypes promoting the idea of a damsel in distress that needs to be rescued. The addition of some of these older films on Disney Plus has actually brought even more attention to this issue, and the company has had to add content warnings on older films which have racially or culturally insensitive themes. The new Disney has worked very hard, visibly, to be conscious of diversity. With the live-action remakes, the company can take all the problematic aspects of the films and replace them with more culturally sensitive ones. This has included having a sensitivity to race and representation, as can be seen with many films such as Lion King, Mulan, and Moana. And the company has advertised the research that has gone into these by consulting members of the cultures that they depict. Many have claimed that this is not enough. Although Disney consults members of different cultures that they depict in their films and pushes for wider representation, particularly of actors in their films, Many of these films that depict different cultures, such as Moana or Mulan, are still written and run by white individuals. Mulan, for instance, has drawn a lot of criticism because Disney has hired white directors, costume designers, screenwriters, composers, cinematographers, editors, and casting directors. Many say that it is difficult to authentically tell a Chinese story when all the important people behind the scenes are white. And finally, I'll be looking at a couple of law-related issues when it comes to the Disney company. The first is the antitrust issues that concerned Disney's acquisition of Fox. Antitrust regulators challenged the deal because they said it would harm competition and raise prices for consumers. In Disney's case, the Department of Justice allowed the deal to go along as long as Disney sold the regional sports networks. This drew a lot of criticism given that Disney's already powerful market share combined with the Fox acquisition would give it a 39% theatrical market share and increase its already significant leveraging power over theater owners. The company has also previously successfully lobbied for changes in the legislation, such as in the case of the Copyright Term Extension Act, which delayed the earliest Mickey Mouse movies into entering the public domain, which prompted many to nickname it the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. This has allowed Disney to still profit off of some of its earlier films, such as the earliest Mickey Mouse films. And with that, I'd like to wrap up on our very first episode of Business Breakdown. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again soon. Like I said, I'll make sure to link all of the resources that went into researching this piece in the description box of this podcast. Some of them are subscriber only, but if it's within your means, I would highly suggest subscribing to read them. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time.